Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining. I am JJ Walsh. This is Seeking Sustainability in Japan, but it is also Travel Tuesday. And I am talking with Felicity Tillak in Kyoto. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. I am looking forward to a great chat. Awesome. Uh, it looks like we're having trouble going out to Facebook, but YouTube and Twitter are a go. So if you are on YouTube and Twitter and you have a comment or question, write it below and we'll try to fit it in. So, Felicity, you have been in Japan since 2006, is that mm-hmm. right? That's right, yep. And how long have you been making films? Like, where does this love of making films and documenting things, where does that come from? So I started making like YouTube videos in 2012 uh, with a good friend of mine and she and I started We're Next Japan and um, are you still there? I can only see myself. I'm here. I'm here. Okay. All right. Yep. My first live. Um, yeah. So she and I made um, some YouTube videos and I kind of got the taste for editing and interviewing people and uh, exploring Japan through through you know videos rather than just going along as a participant or a, a spectator and I don't know exactly when I started branching out into more kind of narrative videos I've always loved stories and I think that when I started doing more documentaries with third culture kids for example and I started interviewing Uh, different third culture kids in Japan about their experiences it started kind of connecting with my experiences as a teacher here at the international schools and a lot of third culture kids in 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 the international schools and that's how it kind of formed into what would become uh, my film impossible to imagine but the whole I mean I filmed that in 2018 to 19 so yeah good six years I suppose of just YouTube videos and documentaries uh, before I kind of strayed into feature filmmaking. Yeah that's so interesting and it's such an interesting medium and I also saw on your YouTube channel that you are interviewing other filmmakers, other indie filmmakers and uh, you have a real interest in the international view after mm-hmm. a long time in Japan and that comes through in your film as well mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. totally I, I think that identity uh, is fascinating and I think that yeah that lens of being in Japan for a long time and I've perhaps only noticed it recently but how my own identity is beginning to shift and change um, from what it was which was you know very much a very strong Australian identity uh, to something that's now kind of, I don't know, a little bit less Australian, a kind of mix. Um, so I guess it's very reflective of what's happening within myself. But And I'm interested in exploring that through other people as well, hearing their stories, hearing their experiences, because everyone's different. I mean, you've been in Japan such a long time as well. Um, how do you feel about your identity? I think um, we mentioned before we started that I I really feel for my kids. My kids have no Japanese blood, um, but they feel like they are Japanese. And and this is something that that you have touched on in your interviews and I think in your film as well, right? Definitely in the interviews, um, the third culture kids one, uh, one of the people I interviewed, uh, or two, the twins, Raelia and Jonas Slaby, yeah, born in Japan, raised in Japan, have lived all their lives in Japan, but their passport's American and they've never lived there. And if you say, oh, go home to America, they're like, well, that's not home for us. Um, or uh, military children as well, they have this, this sense. In the film, in Impossible to Imagine, it's a lot more about being biracial and having that feeling of being split sometimes the the main character talks about you know this this feeling inside of like sometimes being like why am I being so Japanese or why am I being so American or Australian um and not feeling comfortable anywhere and I wonder how that might be different for third culture kids like do your kids feel that like when they go back to your home country do they feel comfortable there or 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I know for my son, he he's looking for university now. He's on a gap. Um, and he is feeling drawn to a third language culture. Uh, he doesn't want to be anywhere where Japanese or English is the main language. What so that's really interesting, right? So yeah. he's he's kind of embraced this being an outsider inside kind mm -hmm. of idea, right? That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you also had a very interesting interview um, with an international communications and culture expert, Rika Ori, who does Rika. New Face of Japan. Yes. And she had yeah. some really interesting insights, which I think plays into a lot of your different work. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. We had a great in uh, chat. Rika's such, um, you know, she's doing such great work in this area with students up in Tokyo, really talking to them about sometimes uh, the students really don't have much of uh, an experience with the, the world that, you know, their biracial peers might be experiencing. Um, or they have an image of Hafu being uh, somebody on TV, being an entertainer on TV, not a real, you know, person that could be in the street. And her daughter as well is is uh, ethnically Indian, but born and raised in Japan, speaks Japanese. And yeah, these these conversations are so important, especially in these dense parts of Japan, like Tokyo, Osaka, Kyoto, uh, Hiroshima, you know, where more foreigners ha are having children, these conversations really should be being had. Um, and hopefully that'll help kind of like build that awareness everywhere in Japan. Yeah, definitely. I interviewed Tiffany Rosdale yesterday, who yeah. um, she, do you know her? Yeah, yeah, and she, yeah, yeah. She's been in Japan for so long and she is transgender and talking about feeling accepted, but feeling different, but you know, like all these, all these things that mm -hmm. I see in, in my kids growing up in Japan, I see in your films talking mm -hmm. about um, people and identity and talking to Rika Ori and what is Japanese. And hopefully there is change. Japanese is becoming more diverse and mm -hmm. more inclusive is, is the goal, right? Totally. totally. And even with my film, though, I don't want to be um, just highlighting Japan as a country that that is having these kind of identity struggles with with biracial people, with um, third culture kids either. Uh, as we were talking about before, you know, that making the film led me to connect with people I'd gone to school with who were born and raised Australian, who were as Australian, they had an Australian passport, but were not Caucasian. Um, perhaps Chinese heritage or uh, South American heritage. And just they said that they felt uh, completely excluded uh, from being Australian. And even as adults, one of them just would prefer to be a global citizen than an Australian. And that that brought it home for me. I was just like, oh, gosh, you know, <laughs> uh, we have a long way to go in Australia as well. Well, this brings me uh, the, to mind the Jam Jar Cafe, f uh -huh. a short film that you have on YouTube, a beautiful remodeled old Minka into a antique filled from Australia cafe, okay. uh, run by a very friendly mm -hmm. guy who talks to everybody. I love that part where he says, um, Japanese cafes, you're not supposed to talk to the customer, but I, I always talk to everybody. And uh, like building that real deep sense of community. Mm -hmm. And even the Japanese customers that are in your short, I call it a short film because it's just so beautifully Thank shot. You. Um, the origami sensei, right? The guy yeah. who teaches origami and he says, I feel really comfortable here. Yeah. Because it's a minka, and I grew up around minka, and I love the atmosphere, you know? So this is something Alex Kerr often says, right? Right, like, yeah. If yeah. you remodel the old, beautiful buildings of heritage, mm -hmm. not only the foreigner will love it, but the Japanese will love it too. It's you know, so true. It's so but... true. I mean, especially in, in Kyoto, where, 
your image of the city are these beautiful matsuya, these beautiful minka, these uh, streets of them. And unfortunately, because so many are empty and uh, they're, they're difficult to maintain, they're just being torn down and made into car parks. So Jamja was a weaving factory and then they bought it and remodeled it. And yeah, it was a guest house, a very popular guest house pre-pandemic and uh, a very popular cafe the whole way through. It was really our communal meeting spot. Um, I really miss being able to go somewhere and people would come in and you would recognize them and you'd be like, hey, how's it going? You just don't have that in many places, you know, otherwise. So, yeah, it's yeah. left a big hole in the community here. It's it's like the American TV show Cheers, right? Go yeah. to somewhere where everybody knows your name. That's right. <laughs> Maybe that's showing my age a little bit. No, you might not know Cheers. Yeah. Um, but you said there's an interesting story about what's going to happen to the Jam Jar Cafe. Uh, in this picture of this beautiful Geiko dressed up in costume. And in the film, she's out of costume. Mm -hmm. And she says the most lovely thing about treated the same mm -hmm. by the staff, whether mm -hmm. she's in makeup or not. And yes. they see her. You know, yes. like that was great, powerful. So important you... right, to have somewhere yeah. that you, yeah, that you're not treated with reverence. And I always feel bad because whenever I see Umeha-san, I'm just like, oh, my God, Umeha-san. So I'm not one of the people who's putting her at ease. But Danny, yeah, he, uh, the owner of Jamta, always had a way of making everybody feel very comfortable and just would chat to them. So, yeah, he and his partner and Umeha-san, they have a very good relationship, a very good friendship. So she's actually going to make it into an Italian restaurant. So it will uh, continue in some form very soon. Yeah, I think but it's that's, opening. That's great, isn't it? And I, I love the idea of taking these old, beautiful heritage buildings mm -hmm. and, and using them in a way that's meaningful to the owner and the owner is passionate right. about. Yeah, yeah, if yeah, she's yeah. passionate about running it as a as a f Italian place and he was passionate about making it into a coffee shop, but mm -hmm. that, because they're passionate about it, it, yeah. it makes people want to be there and spend time right. there, right? Right, exactly. You feel it. It's authentic. It comes out, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so let's talk about the film a little bit because the Jam Jar Cafe is in Kyoto. It's an old minka, an old traditional beautiful tea house. Are they minkas? Is that right? Or so most of them are like townhouses and people would live in them and they would be, they would be all along the street. Um, and they'd be separated by one wall. So you'd, you'd have to be quiet because otherwise the neighbors would hear everything that was going on. Yeah. Um, and, and Kyoto's really famous for these matsuya, these beautiful old houses, and they have specific kind of architectural features to them. And, uh, yeah, they're so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, when I, I interviewed Mike Barr, who has renovated uh, Old Minka, and he was talking about the front door space is often quite narrow, but it's very, very deep because you you would have to pay a certain amount just for the, the front right. space. And that was so interesting. Um, but when, one thing uh, Tokyo Weekender said when they interviewed you about your film was, when you're using Kyoto as a backdrop, you're not at the most famous places. You choose to be on the more realistic, what people who live in Kyoto actually mm -hmm. go down kind of streets. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's totally true. Yeah. So I live um, in a kind of more residential part of Kyoto, I suppose. I live near Nijo Castle. And between my house and my school, I kind of bike through these narrow kind of alleyways and I would always see these Ojizo shrines, these these shrines with these um little um Jizo are they Buddhas? I don't I think they're Shinto anyway. I, I get confused. Yeah, Jizo statues and yeah. they're often the travel traveler's guardian, right? That's right, yeah. exactly. And I've never seen as many of these shrines as in Kyoto. They're everywhere. And they're all different. 
So I wanted to include that in the film. I wanted to include this this uh, real unique kind of texture to Kyoto. And then also there's a scene where they're walking along this canal and that's very close to, again, where I work. And so I go to these places frequently and I feel very comfortable with them. Whereas if I was going somewhere like Kiyomizudera or uh, Kinkakuji, the Golden Pavilion, you know, you'd have to get a lot of permission for that. You'd be dealing with, at that time in 2018, a lot of tourists. So uh, there was a lot of practical reasons for the places I chose, but I also wanted to show people kind of real Kyoto, not just not just postcard Kyoto. Well, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm sure it gets a lot more of a feel of actual people living there, not just mm -hmm. the visitors, right? And mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to you about this because I think it's so interesting. Uh, you did an interview with Daryl Wharton mm -hmm. about Darryl his Rigby, film yep. Stay, uh -huh. uh, Daryl Wharton Rigby. And he did a film in Tokyo, but he had lived in Japan. You have lived in Japan for a long time and you're doing films mm -hmm. versus businesses or big film mm. industry that there are some recent ones that I will not mention, but they have come to Japan just to use Japan as a backdrop. Yeah. But usually it's just full of stereotypes yes. and just the, the, the brightness and the neon, right? Yeah. So, it must be as a filmmaker, that's a, a purposeful choice, I imagine, right? Yeah. To show the real, real Japan. Totally, totally. Um, Japan is a difficult country for outside teams to film in, which I'm discovering. Uh, I would love to film another movie in Japan and looking for outside funding for it. But because Japan doesn't have... Uh, international agreements it's very difficult for uh, groups to come over so I guess when they come over they do have a very specific reason for it uh, maybe it is like the kind of stereotype of Japan as this kind of cyberpunky kind of like backdrop and then they don't know anything about Japan um, un unless they have uh, they really just are just looking at it from these kind of recycled stereotypes so for me and for Daryl yeah we're We've been in Japan for a while. We understand a little bit more about what's going on. And um, yeah, I guess we both want to kind of give that insight. But I worry that for a lot of people who are outside of Japan, sometimes it is it it just kind of washes over because it is difficult to connect to unless unless you have been in Japan for a while. I'm not sure. Uh, I think that each audience member connects to the this my film uh, impossible to imagine differently, um, depending on their experiences. But hopefully, all in good ways. Yeah, I think so. And it's it was really interesting to me that as a non-Japanese person who's lived in Japan for a long time, you are choosing to write your script. Well, mm. everything's in Japanese and most of the actors are Japanese, yep. but you talk about it as a collaborative project uh, that you got a lot of feedback from the actors themselves. Okay. You push through some of the decisions, of course, yourself, uh, but how did, how did you do that process? How did that work? Mm -hmm. Did you just write the story first? Yeah, I so I started with the about probably two thirds of the script was finished by the time we started filming. Um, uh, so the the film that you see is not the film that we started making at the beginning in March. Um, and so I was writing as we were shooting, and there was a lot of collaboration uh, between myself and the translator. Uh, so he's from Osaka, and you know, we would talk about certain phrases that they would use, certain metaphors that don't exist in Japanese, um, but which I was using like the, there's like, a, there's a metaphor in Japanese, like, you know, the kake, kakehashi, the, the bridge that connects, but then she uses it later on where she's like, I'm not going to cross the bridge. 
um, when she's angry. I'm not always going to be the person who crosses the bridge. And he was like, that doesn't really make sense in Japanese. And that was one of the ones I pushed through. He's like, is it important? I was like, that one's important. But there are other times when, uh, yeah, we'd be doing rehearsals, uh, myself and the two main actors. And yeah, I was so happy that they were at a point where they could say, I don't think Hayato would say that. I don't think Yuki would act that way. Um, and we could we could talk about that. Uh, there was one more I remember just now where, uh, so William, the guy who acted as Hayato and, and Yuki who acted as Ami, you know, they're both Japanese. They've lived in Japan for a long time and they're used to these dramatic kind of conventions, I suppose. So there's a scene where they kind of, he, he steals a kiss and he wanted to like pat her. And I was just like, no. And she was like all for it. She was just like, yeah, it's like a very affectionate gesture. And I was just like, no. For me, it felt, um, it just came off wrong. So that was another case where I was just like, I think I'm going to put on my director hat and just say, let's not do that. <laughs> that is so interesting. I want to show uh, a little bit of the trailer in a minute, just to give people a, a taste of it. Um, cool. You can see the trailer on Amazon Prime as well as Vimeo. Is that right? That's right. Yep. And what were you shooting with? Because it's so beautifully uh, filmed. What were, were you using a bunch of different cameras or? I used a bunch of different Panasonic Lumixes. So all the same brand, I suppose. But I started off with a Lumix uh, P, a GH3. And there are some shots on a GH2. And then by the end of the film, I was able to afford a GH5, which is a much more typical camera that people use for film for indie films. Uh, I don't think GH3 is usually considered good enough quality, but I was really happy with all of them. Um, and nobody's really ever commented on the quality of the image. It seems to be fine. So, yeah, I think that indie filmmakers should just go out and use whatever camera they, they can. I mean, GH series is very affordable. Um, yeah, and I'm really happy with the results. That's awesome. Well, you talked about uh, being able to afford a better camera. So mm -hmm. what what was the funding like? Did you get funding to do the film or was it crowd crowdsourced? I funded it. was self-funded. It was oh, fully funded. Wow. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, I mean, yeah. for a first-time filmmaker, um, it would be hard, I think, to ask for money. You know, I had to kind of prove it to myself as well a little bit. You know, can I do this? Um, and with films, there's so many, so many obstacles. And when you're crowdfunding, you have these promises you have to keep. So it, I found a lot of freedom in just funding it myself. I, for an, if I did another film uh, independently, I probably would self-fund again, um, maybe with maybe family or, you know, somebody close, but nobody Nobody outside of that, I think. But what I'm really hoping to to attract is like proper proper financing for another film, so I could have a proper budget. Would be my dream. Yeah. And you're doing this on the side, like a yeah. crazy passion project, right? Like you do have a, a real job that gives you a salary. Yeah. Um, but is the dream to do this full time? Is this what you would like to do? Definitely, I'd love to give it a real shot. Um, see how far I can take it. Um, my full-time job is a teacher at international schools, and I love that. It's a great job as well. But I think when you start getting more seriously into filmmaking, um, it just takes it does take a lot of your time. And even for impossible to imagine, when I was editing it, I was obsessed. You know, I would wake up early, edit, go to school. Uh, and at school, I was a hundred percent at school. But when I came home, I'd be back to editing and edit till late um that was yeah that was intense wow yeah, yeah that's that's pretty crazy and uh <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure you were completely focused only on the curriculum that you're teaching mm -hmm. but if it was me i would be like daydreaming oh i'm gonna do that part when i get home <laughs> or like that is that is wild like that is two full-time jobs 
but yeah. but it helps, right? It helps keep you alive and eating and a roof yeah. over your head, I guess. I think so. Actually, I wonder if I'm more creative when I'm working full time because sometimes when you uh, have all the time in the world, then you procrastinate and things get loose. Whereas when you're working full time, you have these limitations and you're aware of them. So I don't know. I don't, I mean, I wouldn't really want to balance two things like this forever, but um, maybe it's not always such a bad thing. No, that's, that's true. I, I understand that. Like if you, if you have a long holiday and mm. you don't have any schedule and you, you don't stick to your routine, mm. often you get very little done. Right. Like you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to write a book in the holiday. Yeah. Like I'm going to get so much done. Yeah. And then um, you're like at the end of the holiday, I didn't do anything. <laughs> but sometimes when you have a nine to five and then you have a passion project, you get so much done. Cause, Cause you, you have, have time and you're still like time. motivated, right? Your engine's still running. <laughs> now it is available to rent or to buy. So is this going to help like recoup some of your costs over time? Yeah. yeah. Um, I've been, I've been pleasantly surprised actually. Um, so it's also on DVDs in America and, and yeah, I, it depends on the month or it depends on the quarter, but I've had some really good quarters. I've had some much less good quarters, but yeah, I, I was surprised that it's actually starting to pay back some of the money that I spent. So <laughs> that was nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Ready, ready for your next video camera. Like is yeah, right. funding, <laughs> funding your next set of equipment that you need for your next project. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, before we watch the trailer, do you want to introduce the trailer? Like, what are we going to see or give us some okay. insight? Okay. All right. So Impossible to Imagine is the story of a traditional uh, woman from Kyoto who owns a kimono shop, but it's not doing very well. And so she has to bring in a uh, business consultant who happens to be biracial. Australian Japanese and they have very different ways of looking at the world he really wants the world to kind of speed up and he's quite a pushy person and meanwhile she wants the world not only to slow down but even kind of go backwards a little bit but uh, as the story goes on they learn to appreciate each other and even fall in love and the question of the film is can they make it work can they change enough for each other <laughs> お母さんがやってきたことを無駄にしたくないねん。実はその人を網に紹介しようかなと思って。神様本当にこのお店を買いたいと思ってらっしゃいますか私がコンサルタントを引き受けするのは難しいと思います。あの人話し方がストレートす
Um, so he made the the kind of that lilting kind of like background. And my friend uh, Sachie Sunaga, she's she used to be an idol up in Niigata. So she wrote the lyrics and she performed it. So yeah, all of these lovely kind of connections coming together for the making of Impossible to Imagine. But I don't Great. know if I, I, I personally don't know if I'd want to watch it again because I've seen it like 500 times now. So. Yeah, I've, I've talked to so many authors and they, they say similar thing, right? Like once it's done, they don't really want to pick it up and read it again. Like because they, they pick it apart a little bit. Do you do that with, with a finished product? Like you're like, oh, I wish I had done that different or. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And I, I remember listening to an interview with, um, one of the guys who was an actor in Gilmore Girls and he's like never watched like the series. I mean, cause you know, why would you, it, you've lived it and then you just kind of be picking it apart. Um, but I think it's a good learning tool as well to kind of look back at your work and say, Oh, I like what I did here. Maybe I'd try that again, but you know, this really didn't work. Um, and there are definitely scenes like that where I'm like, oh, I wish I could cut that scene. But, you know, you move on, you get better, you on to the next kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So how many views has it had? Do you know how many people have bought it or rented no, it? Or? No, that's a really good question. And um, are you going to beat your record of most viewed videos about the toilet on your YouTube channel? <laughs> How to use a Japanese toilet has 37,000 views. That's amazing. Like, and it's, it's hilarious because <laughs> when I go back to Hawaii or California now and there's big hotels advertising, we have a Japanese toilet. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> after, after living in Japan for so long, I know yeah. what you're going for, <laughs> the modern Japanese toilet. But that's not what I oh, imagine. They're talking about the washlet, like the, yes. with the heated seat. Yes. Oh, yeah, they that's are not <laughs> talking about the one that we're imagining. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I really don't understand why the heated toilet seat isn't more popular worldwide because it's amazing. But, yeah, no. Um, how to use a, a Japanese toilet is surprisingly popular. Um, you know, yeah, I think you, this is my Before, we started, yeah. before <laughs> we started, you said that's Reddit. Reddit has oh. sent everybody to maybe, <laughs> uh, maybe that's Reddit. Yeah. Uh, the sumo wrestler one was Reddit. That was okay. that was Reddit. Um, and maybe Kishiwada, the Kishiwada Matsuri one as well. I don't know why the toilet one's so popular. <laughs> I guess people really want to know. They're like, I'm going to Japan. How am I going to use the bathroom? So luckily, guys, there are usually not many of these left. <laughs> Most of them are normal toilets. So. Oh, there's a lot yeah, in Hiroshima. Actually. When you get outside the big cities, we have a lot. Oh. And the thing that kills me, I mean, we're talking about toilets a little bit too much in this talk, but <laughs> the thing that kills me is that you have in every new public restroom, you do have at least some, right? Mm -hmm. But everybody is waiting for the sit down one, not mm -hmm. the squat, right? <laughs> Though, so why are I, we remember, still yeah. I remember going to Disneyland, <laughs> Disneyland with a, a group of Japanese girlfriends. And there was one of the girls who had a Japanese squatty toilet at her house and she couldn't use anything else. So maybe I've, I've met people yeah. that have the, you put like a sitting oh. thing on top oh. of it and use it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's switch gears back to travel because <laughs> yeah. this is Travel Tuesday. Is. Uh, let's. So we've talked about your film, which is fabulous and Thanks. set in Kyoto, which everybody wants to go to. Mm -hmm. um, if you do go to Kyoto, once tourism starts back, I always recommend go early, go mm -hmm. later in the afternoon. Do not go at the mm -hmm. main tent to two times to any popular part but in your film you're showing a lot of back streets okay. and that's mm -hmm. what i would recommend if you go to kyoto go around the outskirts go around totally. the back streets yeah. right yeah yeah totally let's talk about what's next uh where next japan sorry mm -hmm. now this is uh 
a theme that mm-hmm. you've been doing on YouTube and Instagram. And tell me, what is your concept for Where mm-hmm. Next Japan? Where does that come from? Yeah, so it's basically three things. It's um, travel, culture, life. And Where Next Japan basically just came out of, uh, there was a period of time when my husband and I did travel a lot and we went up and down Japan and (laughs) I was just like, I I need to start kind of documenting this. Um, A lot of the blog posts, tend towards being uh, more cultural or interviews with people uh, nowadays because we're not traveling as much as we used to. But, yeah, I think when I started the blog in 2012, there there was, it was, you know, being a Japanese blogger was just kind of starting out. There was less than there are today. Um, so I hope that I could add some, you know, insights to people so that they could find something interesting. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot uh, on online now. You know, there's a lot of other bloggers out there. Um, so I'm not sure how how much my blog cuts through, but um, yeah, it's just it's just sometimes nice for yourself, right, to kind of look back as you're showing um, my Instagram photos. These are memories. These are days where. You know, I went out and did something fun. So even I'm, I'm glad that other people look at them and enjoy them. But, yeah, even just for me, sometimes it's nice to kind of go, oh, that picture of the, of the bathroom, that was my very first apartment. And uh, there's some mascots from Hikone and Jam Jar, of course. So, yeah. You've got and some from yeah. your your videos that you're doing films that you're working on um yeah. things that you're doing personally your personal travel insights and interest in culture and off the mm-hmm. beaten track it's it's lovely i love it it's great yeah. and it it gives a much more realistic but also more i would say sustainable uh experience of what it's like living in japan and that appreciation of tradition Mm -hmm. and culture but also appreciation of the modern convenience and and Mm -hmm. how to live a comfortable life right totally and japan is such a, a a country of of various um various experiences it's it's so beautiful it's so varied uh, each pre- prefecture is completely different, uh, different food, different festivals, and it's all fantastic. Uh, I think that's kind of why I can't leave because I just, I love just going around the corner and there's something happening that, you know, I've never seen before, never experienced before. And also people in Japan are so kind and I've had so many fantastic experiences with people um maybe it's on a doing a taiken doing some kind of experience or uh, just somebody on the street who just you know we connect in some way so yeah uh, and it is a very convenient country you the public transport's amazing um you know the you know you don't have to carry everything with you but of course you know now that we're we're talking more about sustainability it is always good to remember to bring uh your own you you know, utensils. Yeah. Uh, choose the less plastic packaging, uh, refill your water bottle, all these, you know, things that we can do to make a difference. Right. And, uh, and always, I, I try to talk to staff and, uh, mm-hmm. at different shops and just ask if it's possible to use my own bag instead mm-hmm. of a plastic bag or, is right? it possible to have this without meat and fish? And if not, no problem. You know, just yeah. trying to do it in a positive, non-pressure mm-hmm. way. It's hard. But each time you have a conversation, you're planting a seed. And really? it gets easier over time. And people are like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why she was asking about that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's great to have those conversations with people, definitely. Yeah. Now, speaking of great conversations, I would love to hear a little bit about this project. Uh, Writers in Kyoto, and you interviewed the amazing Robert Yellen, Uh who has been on my talk show series a few times. I visited his gallery. His enthusiasm 
for amazing pottery is mm -hmm. so infectious. And you did such a beautiful short film about him. And tell us about it. This is a great, great project. Yeah. So um, Robert and I are both part of a group called Writers in Kyoto. And I really wanted to, you know, kind of sharpen my skills up again as a videographer. And I reached out to John Dougal, who is the uh, kind of leader, I suppose, of Writers in Kyoto, though he wouldn't say so. And I just said, you know, I want to make this interview series. Who would you recommend? Um, I hadn't met Robert prior to that. So it was, it was a fantastic opportunity to get to know him, his wonderful gallery, the fact that he knows every piece so like so deeply uh in the the documentary we do uh, a sake cup challenge with him where he's actually kind of closes his eyes and holds out his hands and we put in a sake cup and he knows who made it <laughs> just by touch and yeah he's he is so enthusiastic and deeply knowledgeable about about pottery in Japan. So all of those beautiful pieces around him, he could tell us their history, um, you know, their influences, be it Jomon or Bizen or, you know, and then we went to the Kawaii Kanjiro Museum. And so he has such a deep love of Kawaii Kanjiro, who was this, this Kyoto-based uh, ceramicist potter. And yeah, his love for for him and his art just came out so so strongly in the film um so if you come to kyoto i do really recommend you go see the kawaii kanjiro museum um and robert yellen's gallery yeah. if you can um it's really near one of the famous temples mm -hmm. it's near it's, um in kakuji yeah right, yeah and it's it's such a beautiful area where his gallery is but yeah. Um, it's just, I love the way you did the film and how uh, similar to what you did with the Jam Jar Cafe, um, showing such a human side of the person you're interviewing. And he's talking about tennis and his love of tennis. <laughs> yes. Like this is stuff I would never know about Robert Yellen. Yeah. And he, he loves pottery so deeply. He knows so much about it, but yeah. he's so humble and such a real person that you want to hang out with, right? Totally. Yeah, he is. He's a lot of fun to talk to. And his stories were amazing, especially about tennis. Like he was, he was like, oh, yeah, I met Rod Levo. <laughs> it's just like this is very famous Australian tennis player. I was his ball boy. Okay. So it was, it was kind of a it was kind of joked about during the day that we would go out and film him doing tennis. And then we're like, oh, no, let, let's actually go do that. So, yeah. um, no, but I yeah, thought that yeah. what he said is so beautiful, though. And this is something uh, when I talk to historians of nuclear energy and radiation and really serious issues, they say the same thing. They need to go out and have a nice meal, take a walk in the park, mm -hmm. uh, do something that is totally different from their day job, Yeah, right? And he's, he's like that with tennis. He's like, I just need something completely different that's fun, yeah. that I can connect with other people and have yeah. some exercise, you know? I think that connection is really important. You know, I watched a, a, a short documentary on a man who always went to his when he moved around, he'd always go to the local church because of the community. And he wasn't religious at all, but he loved the community. And I think uh, that for Robert, that's the tennis community. Like you make friends, you have people who love the same thing you love. And it's a, it's a great um, tip for all of us, I think, is to find your kind of people and then you'll never be alone, right? Yeah. What's the hardest part of doing a video or film project for you? Um, because as a filmmaker, you're shooting so much content. Mm. Uh, is it difficult to edit it down and get the right story that you want to tell at a certain amount of time? Mm. Or is it you want to make sure you get a theme like uh, when you were talking with Daryl Wharton Rigby talking about hope is there a certain theme that you're going for? Can you tell us a little bit about your process? I think that it is always scary going out um, 
to do a documentary, I do a lot of pre-interviews. So with Robert and with Daryl, we both scheduled some time to talk prior to the the real day, the real event. So I could kind of, yeah, uh, whittle down uh, the questions that I wanted to ask and, uh, yeah, the angle that I wanted to go. And with Darren, uh, with Daryl, sorry, we really, um, yeah, we, we talked about how we would, you know, what kind of theme we would want to talk about. And that was the, the theme of hope. Um, when you just kind of go out and you don't have that ability to pre-interview uh, or kind of, you just have to be super prepared. So I think that's the hardest thing for me is like uh, having in my head kind of a list of the questions, the kind of shots I want to get, and then having the equipment on hand for any situation. Um, that is hard. For the narrative stuff, it's easier because you have to be so prepared. You have your storyboards. Uh, you have thought about what kind of equipment you're going to need for what uh, situations. You might have had a chance to re rehearse it even with the actors. Uh, and then I'm not the kind of director who takes a lot of takes. So if it's good at three, I'll stop. Um, so I don't have so much footage to cut, you know, choose from. But I would recommend, if you can, always getting more than one shot, even for documentaries, because you want to have more options when you get back to editing. Um, there have been a few times where I've gotten back and it would have been perfect, but uh, something happened, some weird noise or just, you know, it was blurry or something like that. And uh, I know that real documentarians documentary makers sometimes will get people to do it again. They'll be like, that was really great. Do it again. <laughs> if you have that latitude, um, that can that can also be good. But you, you do lose a little bit of the spontaneity when you get people to do things again. I think I did it once in the Jam Jar documentary. Uh, I don't think it made it in, but Danny and his friend Pascal were talking about the the feeling of not really – can like under not really accepting it yet and Danny's saying oh you haven't got the memo I think it might be in there actually and they'd just been talking and I was like oh that's really good do it again now I'm ready <laughs> so yeah. uh, it really depends on on the shoot I guess now you mentioned spontaneity and I noticed that in the jam jar um, I did notice that thing about the memo uh, that was in there um, yeah. but there was a really beautiful moment where you capture a Japanese uh, local woman who often comes in. She's a musician. She really loves that place. And the part that you use <laughs> is her trying to set up the shot. Yes. But it's so natural <laughs> and spontaneous and lovely. But was she upset when she saw you using was, that part? I was worried about that. Um, but it really, that's that's her. That's why I used it. It's that's her. That's her personality. Um, she's so funny like that. And I, I remember, I, I think I cut uh, the song the way she wanted it, but she got annoyed with Danny when they were actually singing the song because he kept on playing the same part and she needed him to like move on to the next bit. I think there's some part where she actually uh, kind of like whacks him. And then afterwards she comes up to me and she's like, you're going to edit that right. You're not going to have that piece in. I was like, yes, yes, ma'am. Um, so, yeah, her personality is is so um, is is that's her. That's Mufi. So I I did have a moment where I was like, oh, is is this the right thing to show? But I asked um, some people, and they were just like, no, nah, I think I think that's okay. So I'll, I'll oh, that's good. Maybe text her later and just be like, you got <laughs> yeah. me worried about it now. Well, it's, it's hard because, um, you you know, if if you make something in and you feel this is the best thing I could make, this is the story I want to tell. Mm. But if somebody has, what do you say in Japan, a claim and, yeah. and say that they just are really unhappy with one part, mm. you would you would have to pull it or edit it, right? Yeah, I've had that before. I did a, um, I did a little little short video on fashion in Osaka and it was it was a cool shoot and it was a fashion show that they were putting on and I interviewed one of the designers 
And then a few years later, she had a bad relationship with the people who put on the fashion show. And so she said, please take down that video. So I did. Yeah. Um, I've, I've had it happen in yeah. my series. Uh, yeah. If you go through, you will see there's one missing. Uh, some, somebody just, they watched it and it's not where they're at right now. Uh, and right. And I, I respect that. And yeah. they're, they're trying to transition to a new type of brand <laughs> and it doesn't fit their brand, what they were talking about. Yeah. And I, I would say, even if you don't think it fits your brand, it's showing your, your history. And it was yeah, really, yeah. it was really cool what you were talking yeah. about, you yeah. know, that's a shame, but, but yeah, that's a shame. Just the way it is, but I can watch it. And <laughs> I can go back, I can write a blog about it, you know, like without the person's name, like I, I still have that interaction. I still have that experience and inspiration from that. So um, hopefully people can remember it who felt inspired as well in some way, right? Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's hard because you're a creative person and you're creating something. It's like art the way you create it mm. is not necessarily the way people are going to interpret it. Totally. Totally. Right? And it's always, it is always nerve wracking. Like when I sent out the, the, the video to Robert, even I was, you know, you're always on the edge of your seat. How are they going to take it? Are they going to like it? Are they going to be disappointed? Are they going to feel that they're represented accurately? Uh, luckily, yeah, he and um, the people in the Jam Jar video really loved it. And, um, yeah, and the, so that's worked out okay. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's always nerve-wracking. <laughs> yeah. So we, we have about six minutes left. Mm -hmm. So excited. It was so wonderful talking to you. Um, nice. So where next Japan, I think is the question. Like what, what is on the horizon for you? For me personally, what I'd love to be doing is getting, yeah, getting some more films going. So I'm in the process of writing a film at the moment that will be set in uh, rural Japan and be, uh, LGBT musical romance, so a little bit different, um, but still, still very much a Japanese film. Still very much about those kind of themes that we were talking about. If that doesn't get off the ground, then maybe a sequel to Impossible to Imagine would be nice. And yeah, I think with Japan, we're just waiting to see what's going to happen with the virus and if the borders will open, hopefully before Sakura season next year. Because um, everything is, yeah, it's kind of stalled at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. I got really upset with the latest border closing um, because I, I had been, and I think most people had been, kind of getting used to it, getting used to the stay at home. And then we have this really high vaccine rate and things seem to be like they're moving towards, you know, even travel opening up again, seeing family and, yeah. oh man, it was hard. It's hard to have to take a step back. Right. Um, so we're still going to have an online lifestyle for a bit longer, I think. Yeah, I know. It it was looking so bright. Um, the state of emergency kind of finished and the numbers have been so incredibly low and life just feels kind of normal. And then, yeah, boom. Thanks. Thanks, Omnicron. Yeah. <laughs> now, when, one thing we haven't touched on yet, you've done some great interviews for Japan Story. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so... I am trying to remember, I think I connected with Duncan um, in a similar way to how you and I've connected about that he wanted to do a interview about Impossible to Imagine. And uh, after that, he was looking for somebody to, to make video content. So he said, would you be interested? Um, and yeah, I got to interview like different people 
uh, John Dobe you've got up there and Richa, Richa Ori. So I got a chance to like actually like reach out to people as well and kind of pitch to, to Daryl, um, to Duncan. Oh, all these names with Ds, Duncan. Um, and he's great. He was the correspondent for BBC and he was in Tokyo. And his knowledge about uh, crafting stories and um, interviewing people and cutting a story so it's interesting uh, was just really invaluable. So he was uh, a very good mentor to me and I really appreciated his his advice. Um, yeah, but he's also a full-time journalist and he's he's busily working on lots of different projects. So Japan Story kind of comes and goes. Um, he's definitely still doing it and he's definitely getting a lot of views. I haven't done something for Japan Story for about gosh, six months now, I think, maybe longer. But um, yeah, it was great. It was great to see you doing interviews because when I watched uh, Robert Yellen interview, when I saw the Gem Jar Cafe, I don't hear your voice. I, uh -huh. I know that you're directing it, you're producing it. But then when I watch the Japan story, I see your face. I see you're doing the interviews. It was, it was really fun. Thanks. Somebody's doing something very similar to me, I think. Thanks. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um. Yeah, I'll, I'm looking forward to going back through because, yeah, when I clicked on your YouTube channel this week and I saw um, Tiffany there, I was just like, oh, that looks really good. So I'll start with Tiffany's. And uh, go Tiffany back was great and so much great positive energy. And um, if your next project is doing a musical, she might be the perfect person to get in touch with with an LGBTQ uh, theme. She was in the entertainment industry for 25 years That's in Tokyo. True. Does she yeah. sing? I think she might. I know she's a DJ, so oh, she cool. would definitely be able to connect you with people who could, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really good tip, actually. Yeah, I'll have to talk to Tiffany. Yeah. No, yeah. She is so positive, though. I love, I love her feed. It's always gives me fantastic. Yeah. And looking at uh, your Instagram as well, you have been to some amazing autumn views around Kyoto, is it? Or yeah, oh, one thing we didn't mention yet is your experience at Koyasan. What an interesting seven months in the kitchen, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, living and I was doing uh, moritsuke, which is putting the food on the plates. And I got really good at putting the carrot, like these kind of like strings of carrot, and you have to kind of mold them in your hand. I was very proud of how my carrots looked. Um, yeah, no, it was a wonderful experience. I had very good senpai, people looking after me. Um, I got to see the inside of a Buddhist temple and what monks are really like, which is very kind. They're all very kind, but they're also very rambunctious and mischievous and uh, carnivorous, so <laughs> maybe a little different from the image. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was that was really interesting. I was watching part of the video and uh, talking about all the things you were surprised about, but I think you have brought a lot of those themes about what is real yeah. life in Japan like, right? Yeah. What is Japanese culture? What is Japanese tradition in the modern sense? That mm. seems to be a common theme of all your work. And uh, that seemed very influential, that seven months in Koyasan, right? I think so. I think so. It was a real uh, bookend moment in my life. You know, I, I think back on it often. It's where I actually came up with the idea for Impossible to Imagine, which would have been, in my mind, set in Koyasan. Um, because it is such a, a, a world between two worlds. You know, it's so traditional. It's 1,200 years old. But it is beloved by tourists. You know, it is, you know, almost a theme park pre-COVID because of so much tourism. So it would have been... But, I mean, Kyoto is, is, is the same, right? So, but, yeah, Koyasan is magical. I, I love Koyasan. Wow, great. Well, that is our hour, exactly. And uh, <laughs> thank you so much for joining my show. I love it. Me too. I'm glad that we've connected and I look forward to, to connecting further. And I do too. Keep in touch. I, yeah. I want to keep talking. I'm, I'm going through more and more of your videos 
and more of your, even your Instagram, you know, feed. And I think we've got many more mm. conversations to have. So I'd love to have you on again. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for joining and uh, see you next time. Have a great night. Take care.